welcome to the Style My Mind podcast. On this show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of fashion and psychology with the world's most inspiring people. Our mission is to unlock the power to become the best version of yourself by turning their wisdom and knowledge into practical advice. You probably asked yourself more than once, who am I? Well, today we have a very, very special guest joining us. He is a professor of psychology at Lehigh University. His research investigates how people's identities affect conformity, dissent, racism and ageism, solidarity, health and leadership. He lives in eastern Pennsylvania with his family and dog Biscuit. I like to warmly welcome Dr. Dominic Packer. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dominic. Thanks for having me, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to join you. <laughs> I truly believe understanding social dynamics and a social and social identity can influence positively our listeners' life in the long term. So I have already given a brief introduction on a part of who you are. How would you, though, summarize your professional and academic bio and experience? So I am a social psychologist. Um, I'm... Canadian. I got my PhD at the University of Toronto, uh, but I've lived in the United States now for uh, about 12 years. I'm a professor at Lehigh University, uh, where I teach and I write um, and increasingly talk to people publicly about the dynamics of identity. Uh, so I do lots of podcasts and other kind of public events trying to tell people about a book that we recently wrote uh, called The Power of Us, which is all about how identity and especially our social identities, that is our identities that are grounded in the groups that we belong to, uh, influence how we think, how we feel, and how we behave. Thank you so much. So speaking of social psychology, a lot of my listeners are not necessarily from the academic path or don't have much experience and knowledge around mm -hmm. psychology. So how would you define social psychology just in a few sentences? Great question. Uh, social psychology is a sort of branch of psychology that studies how it is the human mind is able to understand, make sense of, and help us navigate the social world we live in. So some social psychologists study uh, interpersonal relationships, for example. How is it that people form friendships, fall in love, uh, what makes a good relationship, psychologically speaking, and so on. The kind of social psychology I do uh, is more focused on groups. So how is it that we come together in groups? What helps us to cooperate with, with our own group members? Why do we prefer our own group oftentimes over the members of other groups? But also, mm -hmm. what can we do to bridge group-based divides? How can we help people cooperate with people who aren't necessarily in the same group that they're a part of? How can we reduce things like prejudice and discrimination? So all of those are the sorts of questions that social psychologists look at. And it really has to do with how do we make sense of, navigate, and, and deal with the social world? And human mm -hmm. beings are incredibly social species. We're what's called a hyper-social species. Uh, which puts us among other species like that are quite different from us, but like honeybees and ants, which live in massive societies. We do that as well. And our, our brains and our minds have adapted to let us do that. Mm -hmm. That's that's fascinating. And I can hear how passionate you are about this. So what mm -hmm. drew you first first to even go into this research direction? That's a great question. Um, I'd always sort of been interested in psychology. Uh, so I went when I went to university, I took an introduction to psychology course in my first year, and I hated it. It was incredibly boring. Okay. I'm not saying psychology is boring. This course was incredibly boring. It really turned me off. 
Uh, but I thought before I drop psychology and decide to do something else entirely, I'll give it mm -hmm. one more try. And so I took a social psychology course, uh, Introduction to Social Psychology, with a professor called Donald Taylor. And he was at McGill University, where I went to school in Montreal. And the course blew my mind. I mean, it was completely fascinating. And he was also an incredibly inspiring teacher. Um, and the combination of those two things just drew me in. I thought, this is so interesting. You know, people spend a huge amount of our time, right? We spend a vast amount of our time thinking about ourselves, thinking about other people. At least 20%, but often much more of our conversation is gossip, right? Which is essentially us in day-to-day -day life playing social psychologists. We're trying to understand <laughs> what are we doing? What are they doing? Why are they thinking this? What's wrong with them? Um, we are all intuitive social psychologists to some degree. And I thought it was just so interesting and fascinating that you could move beyond that and try to study these things scientifically, try to mm -hmm. adopt a scientific approach to understanding what is actually going on uh, when people are trying to make sense of themselves and other people. Mm -hmm. That's that's very fascinating. And now that you said that, if I think about the first time I've been actually involved with like the thinking of understanding of social constructs or things like that, I always immediately think about clothes because for me, clothes mm. are very much a communicator and can tie groups together or like the same factor of like school uniforms, you know, mm -hmm. building groups actually on top of wearing something, making, yeah, make creating a uni unity. Um, mm -hmm. How would you describe the role of fashion within social constructs or furthermore on the bigger picture in social psychology? Well, so I think, Clothing, fashion, uh, the things that we choose to wear are hugely important in social life. I think it's a fascinating issue. That said, social psychologists, the people like me who tend to study mm -hmm. social dynamics uh, scientifically, pay very little attention to fashion and to clothing, uh, at least have done so historically. In fact, there's a paper just coming out in the next few months in a journal called uh, Personality and Social Psychology Review, which is a big journal in our field, uh, arguing that the field has for, for too long neglected this and that there really is not nearly enough research on understanding, for example, what they're focused on in this paper, how does somebody's clothing, what they're wearing, change and shape how other people perceive them, the impressions they form based on them. And they note, for example, that clothing is a marker of group identities, which it clearly it is, right? You can signal a group that you're part of uh, by the clothing you choose to wear. Uh, mm -hmm. It's also a signal, for example, of social status, right? So um, <clears throat> people might wear things that cost more money to signal uh, either that they have more money or that they aspire to, to be someone who looks like they have more money. Um, and that all of these are really important social dynamics. Um, I'm really intrigued by them as an identity researcher. But the reality is, as social psychologists, we haven't paid a huge amount of attention to it over the years. That's where we fashion psychologists come in because it's a new arising field and that's where we're trying right. to focus more on the actual factors of fashion within all of mm -hmm. those psychological um, yeah, fields, which is really interesting to be very focused on that. So thank you so yeah. much for giving a different insight than we already have or people who are not having any insights around it. It's very interesting. So you just said that, um, yeah, it can be a very strong communicator. So you are wearing a black shirt today, like mm -hmm. a sweater. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell me why you chose that outfit? <laughs> well, I often wear black sweaters. So um, sort of part of my uniform, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. So I actually have two, two jobs at my university. I'm a professor 
50% of the time and the other half of the time, um, I'm also uh, an associate vice provost, which is a more senior administrative mm. position. Um, and because they're each sort of 50% of my time on different days, I am different people, essentially. Uh, so today I'm in my psychologist professor role. This is my psychology office at Lehigh. Um, and on those days, I tend to dress more casually. Um, so I'm wearing a sweater. I'm also wearing uh, black jeans. Um, on other days, so Tuesdays and Thursdays especially, I tend to dress up more. I put on a suit many times, or at the very least, a shirt, um, a button-down shirt. Often wear a tie, in part because I'm managing different impressions to different audiences. Uh, on my psychologist days, I'm spending a lot of time just in my own department, interacting with my own students or my colleagues. Tend to be sitting at my computer doing data analysis or writing papers. I want to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. Tends to be casual. On the other days, I tend to be meeting more with people mm -hmm. like deans or people from outside university. We're creating a sort of more professional impression. Uh, is important. Um, and so this is something I've noticed in myself is that I tend to modulate what I'm wearing. Uh, today is one of my more sort of comfortable clothing kinds of days. Um, and I also default to wearing black just because I think it uh, is an easy stylistic choice to make. That's true. There's not, there's for a reason, the little black dress, you know, kind of the perfect thing for always to wear in a way. Yeah, me and my right. peers, we often actually discuss how fashion is a tool of communication. And yeah, um, considering also with the pandemic, what is your opinion on that, that how human connection or disconnection might be established with clothes through your prof professional lens? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a fascinating question. So, um, so we tend to study, my collaborators and I, uh, group-based dynamics and, and the identities that people have based on the groups that they belong to. Mm -hmm. um, and I think clothing and fashion can play a significant role there in, in a few different ways. I mean, obviously you can form identities that have a lot to do with the kind of things that you wear, um, right? So other <clears throat> subgroups and subcultures, for example, where there's a kind of outfit that goes along with it. And this is true if you think about like teenagers who are dressed up as goths or punks, right? There's a very strong group-based norm about how we look and what's appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, and to be inside the group, you really have to do that. And if you don't, you're not really one of us. And it also really strongly demarks that group from other groups. Um, it's easy, you know, I think for older people, especially to look at younger people who tend to do that a lot um, and think, oh, well, that's something that young people do. But of course, we're all doing it all the time, right? So look at a bunch of lawyers, right? They all tend to dress pretty much the same. Um, there's a uniform for that group just as much as there is if you're a goth. Um, and so these group-based norms around how we dress, I think, are very powerful. So powerful, in fact, that we tend not to even notice them, right? If you think about, like, what does it mean to be a lawyer or a professor? Um, very rarely someone mentioned the uniform, like what you actually wear. Uh, it's just sort of in the background, but it is an incredibly strong norm. So much so that when someone violates it, it really stands out. Right. Like if someone yeah. doesn't do that, they show up, if you're a lawyer, you show up to court wearing something that is not lawyerly, you'll be deemed unprofessional. Uh, you might even be asked to leave. Right. Those norms are held yeah. up very strongly, especially in some contexts. Uh, so I think that's that's a part of it and speaks to a, a dynamic that's really broad in groups, which is mm -hmm. the power of social norms is, is strong and perhaps strongest when we're not even really aware of them. 
Another thing I think is fascinating about norms and fashion, just quickly, is to say that our sense of what's fashionable, what looks good, obviously changes over time, right? Um, So you can look back 10 years, it's different then than it is now. You look back, you know, at certain eras, especially, and you think, wow, that looks horrible. But the thing is, at the time, it didn't. Right at the time, mm-hmm. everyone thought it was the height of fashion. Thought it was looked good. It, indeed, it was what looked good. And what looks good today is not the same as these things from the past. Right? You look at old photographs, you think to yourself, "What was yes. I thinking?" <laughs> but twenty years from now, we'll also look back at this moment and think, "What was I thinking?" Right? And that again speaks to the power of norms and how they're sort of an invisible force that we tend to like and think. In this case things look good when other people like them and think they look good. Mm. And it can shift slowly over time. So, so much so that we tend not to even notice. And it's only when you pick up that old photo and think, Whoa, that was a strange choice. that you recognize that your perceptions of in this case, what looks good or fashionable or attractive has changed pretty significantly without you even really noticing it. Do you believe speaking of that, that, um, you know, is that, with going with the flow of the trends, does social identity and norms, do they go fluent with it? Or is it more like a more staccato kind of, um, uh, yeah, development? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, the evidence suggests it can be a bit of both. Norms can change slowly over time, Mm -hmm. but they can also change quickly. And it sort of depends on circumstance. So you can think about attitudes, uh, for example. Um, so this is outside the realm of fashion, but like public attitudes toward, for example, um, uh, let's let's take the domain of, of, of prejudice and discrimination. So mm-hmm. white Americans' attitudes towards something like interracial marriage, um, it, mm-hmm. which has been tracked through public polling for decades, those attitudes changed very slowly over time. Gradually over time, white Americans became more positive toward interracial marriage. So they were quite negative, say, in the 1940s. By now, um, there's few people out there who are negative. Um, So that was a very gradual shift in norms. If you take attitudes towards something like gay marriage, on the other hand, those changed very quickly. Uh, It went from majority of American people were not in favor of gay marriage to, in a span of less than a decade, a majority of Americans being in support of and in favor of gay marriage. And that was a, a very quick cultural shift. So norms can shift slowly and can shift quickly. Um, and in the case of fashion, I think it's it's similar to that. Um, that you sometimes see really slow shifts over time, but sometimes you also see a sudden change. And in part, I think it's partly driven by the fashion industry and you would know much more about this than I would, uh, but they're <laughs> always, you know, at the high levels of fashion, especially trying to do unique things, trying to innovate, trying to be distinct and different. Uh, that's partly the brand, right? Um, and every once in a while, one of those new innovative things will catch on and will take hold very quickly. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really true. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's also, it, it's very interesting because trends develop out of market research and see what also like outside mm. of fashion, like what happens with the political um, right. climate, what happens with, you know, the in general, like climate change and all of those things, how can fashion designers be very um, forward to push that onto people and be a communicator in that? 
What I really like to pick up on is um, the part what you said being distinctive, because in your fifth chapter in your book, you're exploring the juxtaposition of the need to belong and the need to be distinctive, which I find personally very, very interesting. Because mm -hmm. if I look back to when I was like a teenager, I've always tried to kind of like figure out who I am and express who I am um, with my clothes and try to be very distinct and individualistic, mm -hmm. but also kind of try to fit in because, you know, you don't really want to be bullied in school and kind of things like that. So it's very interesting to see that you also spoke about that in, in the book. How would you say can especially young people who are sometimes even dependent on groups to literally be mm. safe in school, um, find balance within that identity kind of to fit in while standing out. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the idea you captured very well is that we have, as humans, we have multiple motives, things that we need to do to satisfy, um, in some cases, our, our physical safety, but other needs as mm -hmm. well. Uh, one very strong motive for human beings is the need to belong. We have to, to survive, generally speaking, uh, work well enough with other people so that we fit in, we're accepted, we're liked. Um, and it's a really strong drive. And, and when it's not met, you experience emotional states like loneliness, right? It doesn't feel good when you don't have this need to some degree at least satisfied. Mm. So this is a really important thing. And it's, I think, very important for young people. Um, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we also seem to have this need to be distinct, to feel autonomous, to feel like an individual, to feel like we're not just like everyone else, to feel like we're respected for our own individual identities. Um, and those two things, to some degree, are in conflict with each other, right? Like if you are, if you belong perfectly, then you'd really just sort of meld into the crowd and no one would notice you. But if you stand out too much, on the other hand, then you're not part of anything at all, right? You're just a lone, yeah. isolated individual, different from everyone. And I think different people have different levels of comfort with those two things. Some people want more of the belonging. Some people want more, more of the distinctness and are, are comfortable being a true iconoclast that doesn't fit anywhere. But most of us are in the middle. And the idea is we're always trying to balance these two things. And there's an idea called optimal distinctiveness, which we talk about in the book, which is that at some level, it's sort of the perfect point for you where it just feels right. Sort of like Goldilocks, right? Like it's the perfect porridge. Um, in this case, it's the perfect identity where... You fit in with a group of people, but you also feel distinct enough. And I think this can be quite strong, especially for teenagers and for younger people. It's a part of life where you're trying to figure out who you are. Not that that ever really stops, but I think that's really pressing in those years. Um, and at that point, one way in which people often do try to meet those two needs at the same time is, is belonging to a fairly unique and distinct subgroup. Right. And this is often defined, for example, by musical interest. Right. So I've talked earlier yeah. about the goth identity or the punk identity, which were big when I was in high school. Um, and these are small groups. They really stand out as a group, right? They're different in all sorts of ways, attitudes, beliefs, the way they dress, uh, the music they listen to, what they're interested in relative to the rest of society. And yet within those groups, there's very strong norms um, and there's a really sort of tight sense of cohesion. Like we are something special. Uh, and by being, being part of that, I feel like I fit in. I have found my crowd. Um, and I don't think I have any perfect answers on how to do that, except that that is something I think everyone is grappling with at different stages of life. Um, and it's worth being attuned to, like, where do you feel like you fit in? Where does, what does feel like your crowd? Mm -hmm. And then um, potentially choosing to embrace that as an identity if it's something that you value and think is important.
That's a very fair point because I think a lot of people are not really, first of all, embracing their interests, but also on the other hand, maybe are a bit of afraid, but even, but mm. that will never close the loop fully because if you are interested in a certain kind of music, as an example, and then you never embrace it or talk about it, you will never find like-minded people who want to build a group with you. That's very interesting. Very interesting phenomenon. Thank yeah. you. Um, considering all of that, do you believe that there has been like a shift in generations or is this intergenerationally forever, always a similar dynamic? Uh, I'm sure there are generational shifts, but I think that dynamic is pretty eternal. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, th these competing motives and this need to both belong, which is very important and probably dates back for tens of thousands of years in human history because it's an evolutionary sort of imperative, right? Like we're a very fragile, vulnerable species. We don't have a shell. We don't have spines. We're not poisonous, right? We're probably quite delicious to many other predator species, right? Human beings survived. We got along by getting together in groups, by being able to form groups and cooperate with each other. And that's how we survived and then thrived, right? We took over the world essentially. Not that that's necessarily good for the rest of the world, but it's been good for our species uh, to this point. Uh, that's on the one hand. So it's a really strong thing. That's not going anywhere. And likewise, mm -hmm. I think standing out, being a unique individual is also important. And because even within a group, you want to be regarded by other group members as, as a value, right? Like there's something about you that is special within us. Like you have special talents or skills or you contribute things that are unique. I can also see why that would be really important, even, you know, mm -hmm. tens of thousands of years ago. Um, so in that sense, I don't think it's that different. But that said, like there are cultural changes and things uh, do change with generations. Um, and one thing that I think has shifted over time is the degree to which, especially in American culture, um, mm -hmm. but in other cultures as well, the, the degree to which we, we prize individualism has risen. Um, so that it's not universally true that the individual is upheld as sort of like the epicenter of a culture. That's very strong in American culture that we are all sort of a bunch of individuals and, and that finding out who you are as an individual is a, is a imperative. It's something that's really important in life. Um, and it's a life task that really should be accomplished in your late teens, early 20s. That's a pretty American idea. Um, mm -hmm. And there are cultures, and there have been times in American culture that have been a little less like that, where this just as important is who you are in your community. Uh, and being a good member of that community is, is particularly important. Um, and so I think there has been a shift generationally to some degree in that, uh, but there's also perhaps bigger differences between cultures. Speaking of, speaking of, um, yeah, uh, being a good member of a group <laughs> in, uh, chapter eight of your book, you discuss the theory of descent and that resonated a lot because especially with the distinctiveness, how far can we go? How extreme can we mm. go? people are so individualistic who are so disengaged with certain grooms that they're distancing themselves. But then also I know people, especially Gen Z's and friends, family who made it their mission now to challenge norms just mm -hmm. for the sake of challenge, ch changing them. So I have a few questions around that because this is really interesting. Sure. I think can be very beneficial for our listeners. Can you explain the difference to our listeners and what impact that can have to group dynamics? Sure. So I think there's, if you think about why would somebody challenge norms, um, you know, you're in a group of people, 
point. You're living in a society and there's a sort of typical way that things are done. It could be normal way to dress, but often it's more substantive than that, right? It's, it's the attitudes people mm -hmm. have or the beliefs they have or the, the kinds of things uh, that they're trying to achieve. Um, people can challenge that for a variety of different reasons. And there are some people who challenge it just because they're contrarian, right? So it's almost like a personality thing. It's like that desire to be different is, is at a high level. Um, and you think whatever other people think, I'm going to take the opposite view. And I think we've all probably met people like that. And we all might've had a moment in our life where we felt like that, whereas like, yeah. but whatever my, we often see this in families, right? Like when parents saying this, I don't actually necessarily disagree with them, but I'm not going to agree with them, right? I'm going to purposely do something else. Um, this is known to psychologists, by the way, as something called reactance, which mm. is uh, we tend not to be liked, like to feel like we're being told what to do. Um, and it can often trigger this resistance, even if we otherwise would have agreed with it. Um, and so, for example, uh, one of the most effective anti-smoking campaigns ever was a campaign that made people feel like they were being manipulated by tobacco companies. The tobacco companies are manipulating you into smoking. Being told that or realizing that then triggered resistance. And like, I don't want to manipulate it and actually reduce the smoking. Um, mm. So the sensitivity being, to being told what to do is a, is a trigger, right? It can cause a lot of us to, and I'm, I do this a lot. <laughs> I don't like to be told what to do um, and I resist it. So that's one reason people dissent or deviate from norms. But another reason that I'm really interested in and have done research on over the years is when we do so because we want to change something. So it's not just resistance for its own sake, but we think things should be different. Um, and usually different in, in ways that we think would be an improvement, right? More ethical, more moral. Uh, it would be a better way to live, be better for other people oftentimes. And it turns out that that kind of dissent is often motivated by concern for the group that we're part of. Um, so when people judge dissenters, like there's somebody who's violating norms, they're standing up and saying, this is not right, we should do things differently. Sadly, what we often see in real life is that those people are, are, are ostracized or not listened to, or if it's in, it's in the context of a workplace, they are often, they don't get promoted. Sometimes they get fired, right? People don't like to hear contrarian views oftentimes, especially if it's critical, especially if it's saying we're not as good as we think we are. Um, so to do, do that takes guts, it takes courage. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that gives people that courage is concern for the group itself. The more they care about the group, the more it might be worth trying to change, even if it's going to be really hard. And even if you might be criticized for trying. So it's only when you really care about us are you going to try to change us, is the idea. Uh, and so that's another thing that can motivate dissent. And it's different from just resisting for the sake of resisting. It's resisting to try to change something for the better. And I think a lot of young people, again, Gen Zs, are in that mode, right? Like it's... You, you look out at the world and you think this place is messed up in all sorts of ways, uh, whether it's in regard to climate change or racism or sexism or other things. And there's a really strong desire, uh, especially among younger people who approach the world with fresh eyes, right? Who are seeing the world yeah. as it is without all the layers of baggage that accumulate throughout adulthood. And are thinking, why is it this way? It shouldn't be this way. We want a better future than this. And it's concerned for, it could be for their generation, it could be for, for a country, uh, it could be for the world at large that really motivates that kind of resistance and pushing for change. Mm -hmm. That's really, that's a fair point because they do have a, we do have a fresh uh, perspective on things. 
um, we learn about the history in school, but we haven't lived it. So it's definitely not going to bias us mm -hmm. as much. And we just see it as it is. That's very interesting. Well, do you have any advice for listeners out there who mm -hmm. want to challenge groups or even countries to bring intentionally change to the world? Like, how can this be achieved without necessarily alienating themselves as you just spoke to? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a big challenge. I mean, it does take courage and it can be very difficult. I think, first of all, finding the cause that really motivates you is, is important, mm -hmm. right? That, that sense of purpose is what keeps people going in these circumstances. Uh, but it's difficult. And you see, for example, among uh, activists, huge burnout rates. People just get burned out by it, um, partly because of the resistance they incur. And with social media, that can be pretty unpleasant, right? You get insulted, um, you can get death threats, right? Like this, this can be very serious. So there's that side of it. Uh, so finding something you're truly passionate about. And then I think going back to that need to belong, a, a cohort of people who feel similarly and are equally motivated, right? That the social support that you get from being with others who are pursuing the same cause just as passionately is, is really crucial. Uh, very few of us can do this on our own, right? Um, And, and it really is about ultimately finding that group-based identity that where you, you, fit, you fit, you belong, you're achieving that need uh, to change the world simultaneously um, and finding the right outlet, I think is really important. Yeah, that's a very fair point. I always think about, for me, conforming, also dressing-wise was always very uncomfortable. But what is the alternative? You know, being mm -hmm. uh, trying to change the world is uncomfortable too. So I suppose we have to learn to become comfortable with the uncomfortable, and I just try right. to figure out <laughs> our spot in there. So, how does social identity play a role in all of that? Well, I think identity is often the motivator. So, one of the things about social identities, if if we consider, if I were to ask you, who are you? And we often do this uh, as psychologists, who are you? Um, people's immediate response is often to think about who am I as an individual? Especially, again, American, America is an individualistic culture that's definitely in the first place people tend to go. But if I press you on it and say, well, okay, what else are you? Who else are you? We can rapidly come up with a list uh, of things or aspects of identity or self that you possess. And it turns out it's, at least for almost all of us, pretty multifaceted, that you can come up with a mm. whole bunch of things and they're not the same. And some of them are who I am as an individual, like what traits or characteristics make me um, unique, different from, say, my friends or my family or my coworkers. Um, some of them are relational, right? So people often talk about, well, I'm a, I'm a sister or I'm a brother, or I'm a father or I'm a cousin. Um, I'm a student, which is also a kind of a relationship. Mm. Um, Those are also important aspects of identities. It's not really just about you as an individual, it's you in relation to other important people in your life. And then for most of us, another big category, and it's often a large category, is groups we belong to that are also an important part of who we are and have become central to how we think of ourselves. And this could be your nationality or citizenship, it could be your race, ethnicity, it could be your gender. It could be um, a school you go to, it could be uh, a sports team that you're a fan of. <laughs> It could be your occupational identity or the occupation you aspire to have, uh, even if you haven't achieved it yet. All of these can be really important and crucial to who you think you are. And so the idea is that we all have these multiple selves and that different pieces of the self can come in and out of focus at different points in our lives or even the same within the space of a single day. Um, and I think 
it's in part that multifaceted nature of self that relates to things like um, descent or, or relates to that feeling of belonging. Um, and that because we have a multifaceted self, we can satisfy those needs to belong, say, in different ways. Um, you don't always have to feel like an individual because you often think, think about the group memberships that are part of who you are. And when it comes to descent, I think um, the thing that really animates it, at least the descent that seeks to change the world, is when one of those group identities becomes important enough for you to want to bother, right? Because it is often hard, it has to be central enough to who you think you are that you think, well, if I am this, this group, right, if this group really is a really important part of who I am, and I don't mm -hmm. like what this group is doing, then something's got to change. And I might be the person, or with a group of other people, I might be able to mobilize a set of people that we can actually change this group for the better. That's 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 great. Thank you so much for elaborating on this. I actually have to admit, <laughs> when I read your book, I was actually challenged because I am one. I was was one of those people who was like, yeah, I have one core self, and that's just me. Mm -hmm. And I had to kind of learn to put that aside. Like, oh yeah, I'm actually so much more than that. That one vision that I have of me, there's so much more of right. me. Which is so interesting because like carrying yourself through even the day, I, I started to like think about it like, oh, yeah. So I woke up and I was a partner because I woke up next to my mm -hmm. partner and then I had to get ready for work. So I was, you know, the person that I am at my workplace. And then when I come back home, I'm a cat mom and a partner again. <laughs> it's, it's, very, <laughs> it's very fluctuating. So it's, it's really, really interesting how you can learn about yourself through your book because it's so, so challenging in a way like, Hey, there is so much more to you, which is also a good mm -hmm. thing. It's so good to know that you are not reduced to just to one thing, especially considering, you know, maybe you have a failed relationship and you're like, Oh no. So mm -hmm. I lost that part of identity now. That's not really true, but it's maybe, you know, um, as a thought distortion, just mm -hmm. in the way. So it's really interesting to consider that also for like an increase in well-being to just be more centered with all of the identities you carry within you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you Absolutely. so much for, for that. It's really, really interesting. Um, yeah, now we spoke a lot about like what has been and what is currently going on. So it's very interesting to think about like what is happening in the future, right? Thinking mm -hmm. about the metaverse and our identities that are in the shape and form of an avatar or <laughs> things like that, or also with the political climate getting more and more mm -hmm. friction. What do you think? I know it's a quite tough question, but where do you think, what is the future of identity? <laughs> if there is That's a, a great, difference. Great question. <laughs> um, because I think it's hard to predict, right? So mm. when the internet really took off in the 1990s and it became clear that people could develop an online life different from their sort of physical life, right? And it, it, initially there was a huge amount of optimism. The idea was that people could explore aspects of themselves or to develop new aspects of themselves because, for example, no one knows who you are online or doesn't have to, right? You could be entirely anonymous and create an entirely different identity if you want to. And there were spaces to do that like this uh, game Second Life, for example, where people would have avatars and construct entirely different lives online and mm -hmm. even have like families online and things. Um, and that was an exciting idea. And I think it has happened to some degree, um, but the optimism is gone, <laughs> um, right? We've also seen that online life has lots of, uh, in addition to positive consequences, has some negative ones as well. 
on the positive side, I think it has allowed people to connect with others like themselves or to forge identities that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do, right? So if you live in a small community, for example, uh, where you're the only person who has a particular interest or you're part of a, a group, um, maybe perhaps a sexual minority group that's, um, you know, looked down upon in the community in which you live, the internet has been a source of freedom for lots of people to find other like-minded people from around the world and connect and get that sense of belonging, cohesion, um, and, and acceptance that's really important. I think that's really good. It's also been a tool in many societies to allow members of, of uh, especially marginalized groups to mobilize for change, right? To get together to, to protest and to organize protests that can actually change their societies. That's all on the positive side, on the negative side, I think we're all aware that um, there seems to be some negative mental health consequences, especially spending a lot of time online. And we spend a lot of time comparing ourselves to other people and the perfect mm -hmm. lives that they project online, which are of course not real, um, but feels real. Um, and then big time we're seeing this, these political problems, political polarization, where the, the identity that seems to sort of be, be supercharged, put on uh, steroids online, are political identities. Uh, in the United States, right? It's the left and the right, or Republicans and yeah. Democrats. And political polarization is amplified really rather dramatically. Um, and this is causing all sorts of problems. So it's hard to predict the future because I think if you went back to the 90s and asked, what's going to happen with the future of identity? There would have been a lot of optimism. At this point, it's hard to feel optimistic, right? It's, it's a lot, things haven't been great necessarily, even though there's also really good stuff that has happened. Um, and I think the, the potential game changer that's really hard to anticipate is AI. You know, in the last few months, that's we've true. seen generative AI really take off these amazing new tools. Um, but it's so early on that it's really hard to predict like what they're even going to be like next year, let alone 10 years from now. I will say on the, on the one hand, uh, all of these things could impact our identities and things could change in ways we don't foresee. On the other hand, going back to what we talked about earlier, the human motives and needs that drive a lot of our identities, the need to belong, the need to feel distinct, these go back for tens of thousands of years, right? These are evolved motives that human beings, and also, by the way, other species, especially the need to belong, yeah. share. Um, those aren't going anywhere, anywhere. Like, we're not going to be fundamentally different as a species, no, uh, even if our technology is radically changed. Um, and we will still be finding ways to satisfy those needs. That's what we will be doing with these technologies. <laughs> exactly how that's going to evolve is hard to say, but I can confidently say that 10 years, 20 years from now, I will still be able to say people have these needs to belong, to feel distinct. They're still seeking those kind of identities, even if the way they satisfy that is a little bit different because we're now all in the metaverse or mm -hmm. we've all got some sort of AI overlord uh, <laughs> that we're answering. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 thank you. Thank you for your insights. That's very fascinating. I actually want to share a little, um, speaking of social media, share a little um, social media clip from, with you uh, from TikTok. And I kind of want to hear your opinion on that. Speaking of identity and social identity, it's quite funny. So let me quickly share this with you. I have nothing to wear. You have plenty of things to wear. Well, yeah, but I don't feel like I'm the right person. It's not just about the clothes, it's how you feel in the clothes. Okay. I just don't have something to like for who I'm supposed to be today. <laughs> That's great. 
I found that very fascinating because considering like how we try to express ourselves and express the identities, all of those we carry, it's fascinating how even the younger people now start pick mm -hmm. up, picking up on these and actually become tiny fashion psychologists and try to mm -hmm. kind of express who they are. So that's kind of where I hope the future will be going with identity, that people will just be more in tune with who they are and with more self-accepting and also how they dress. So, um, yeah, what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, that's a really cute video. And I think captures a, a feeling that many of us have had at some point that, yeah, just, I have options, but I don't, these are, none of these are right. They're not capturing who I am today. I think that's a, a good way of putting it. Um, so I, I have kids and my daughter, um, just turned 13 and it's been interesting over the last few years, watching her sort of attitude toward clothing change uh, from being all about basically comfort, right? Insisting on only wearing what she called soft pants uh, for most of her <laughs> childhood uh, to suddenly um, these days being much more conscious of, you know, what does it look like? And um, it doesn't have to be bright pink anymore, right? She's orienting towards darker colors and mm -hmm. um, seeing that shift, you know, largely is in response to what her friends are, are thinking about and wearing as well. Um, and that sort of need, I think, to have something of a more distinct appearance beginning to become more of a priority for her as she moves into her teenage years uh, has been really fascinating to watch. But it's not <laughs> like she didn't have preferences before. She had very strong views on what she would wear. It just wasn't what, uh, <laughs> to a slightly older eye, you would call fashionable. It was really all about um, the softness of the pants. Yeah, to be comfort, comfort over over dress over style yeah i've i've been always difficult my mom always had to had to kind of try to tune me down because i tend to i had like a for whatever reason an obsession with a platter shoes like shiny mm. something and it always had to yes. be shoes that make noise when you walk it's very funny because <laughs> i don't know i guess yes. i wanted to be there out there <laughs> so um yeah we're starting to slowly come to an end i have a few more questions sure. so speaking of young people and how they start dressing changing and getting more in tune with who they are many people come to me and actually ask like how do i even know who i am especially mm. not knowing what the future may hold how do i know who i want to be especially because who i want to be is often so tied to work and there are so many jobs out there that we don't even know will exist in a couple of years or decades. So it's very difficult to kind of like come to terms with who you are and just kind of try to fit in and find your right path, which is always kind of wanted by at least, I mean, I'm from Germany and with us, it's very clear. You start school and you should at some, some point through high school, you should kind of know what you want and should do. And that's kind of what you stick with until you die. And it's very difficult nowadays with agility and all of those kind of things. What would you advise people who feel lost in their identity? It's a great question. So one of the messages of our book is that identity should be thought of more as a process than as a, a state or as a thing. Yeah. Um, a lot of identity is actually exactly that. It's figuring out who we are and that can change over time, over a lifetime, but also moment to moment, day to day, because we're multifaceted. And I think one one message is that that's okay. 
that's just how it is. That that's actually the nature of identity. It often feels stable, but it's much less stable than it than it appears to be on the surface. And it also looks when you look at other people like they've got it all figured out. In reality, you can say based on our research and the research of others, most people have not got it all figured out. Um, not when they're teenagers, not in their twenties, not in their fifties, or even their eighties. Identity changes, and we don't always know exactly. I think um, linking it to work, I mean, occupational identities are really important to us, um, but it's good to have a sense of self beyond that, in part because um, things don't always go well at work. So as you said earlier, it's good to have more to your life than that. Um, But also because increasingly our occupational identities will change uh, throughout our lives. it's estimated that you know young people today will probably change careers at least five times over their lifespan. Let's change careers, not change jobs, like not get promoted, but do an entirely different thing five different times. That's actually been going on for a while. Um, this is not a new phenomenon, but when we think about our work and our careers, we often have like a sort of 1950s view of it, which is you go to school, you get yourself a job, and then you work that job until you retire. And along the way, you have some success, so you get your pr- promoted, but you maybe even work for the same company the whole time. That is incredibly rare now. It's been rare for a while, uh, but it's all sort of accelerating, I think. Um, I I mentioned earlier, I currently have two jobs. I mean, I work for the same university, but in two different roles, and they're pretty different roles, and I work with totally different teams of people in those two roles. Um, And those are two somewhat different identities uh, that require me to dress differently, for example. Um, It's actually really common, and I think just recognizing it is common, it's a norm, it's okay, um, and that part of in some ways part of the fun of identity and, and of life is actually figuring these things out hmm. that's that's great advice kind of to everyone who's listening that's what you need to take away from this at least <laughs> it is okay if you don't know who you are because you're still developing and becoming the person who you are meant to be so yeah thank you so much i'm sad to say we don't have time to discuss your entire book and discuss more of that That's multifaceted right. topic but i really believe listeners should really consider buying the book your book is such a great tool to understand how identity works giving the insight to more deliberately cultivating identities and also for the bigger aspect at the end of the book how to be a leader in identity groups that you mm-hmm. belong to and helping other people around it So in case people want to learn more about you and what you do, what are some ways they can do that? So uh, the easiest way is probably we have a website devoted to the book, but it also Mm -hmm. links to other things. It's called uh, powerofus.online. And from that site, you can link to a newsletter that we publish on Substack pretty regularly, uh, often about once a week, where we talk about these sorts of issues. Uh, We often talk about real life situations and what we think is going on in terms of identity. We also have a lot of interviews with other people uh, who are doing interesting things um, with regard to identity in all sorts of different aspects of life. So if you're interested, I would recommend that you check, check that out. Great. So I will definitely, for you listeners, I will definitely make sure to put that link into the description box so you can always pick up on that. We do have a closing tradition in this podcast that every episode we challenge our listeners which facilitates growth, intentionality, and awareness. What challenge would you like to give them to intentionally explore their identity? Well, I would ask you or challenge you uh, to try something that I alluded to earlier to make it a little more concrete called the 20 statements Mm -hmm. task or test. 
Um, and it's very simple. All it requires you to do is take a, a piece of paper or uh, type it on your phone uh, and to complete the statement, I am 20 times. So I am a psychologist, I am a father, I am a Canadian and so on. Do that for yourself 20 times and then look at the list. And the idea is that this is a one way to examine and uncover the aspects of ourselves, uh, of our identities that we might not think about all the time that are actually still quite important to us. And there'll be a couple of things to notice. One is that your identity is multifaceted, that there's multiple aspects of yourself and they're not all the same. And then you can take a look at what's on that list. What are the things that really make you unique as an individual? What are the things that are more about the relationships you have? And what are the things that are grounded in the groups that you belong to that are more of these collective or social identities? So it's often, at least when I do it, a, a pretty illuminating kind of exercise and just gives you a better sense of who you actually are. Yeah, fantastic. So you've heard the challenge for the day. Make sure to share uh, your challenge results if you feel comfortable with sharing your identity on social media with the hashtag StyleMyMindChallenge. And yeah, thank you so much, Dominic, for joining me. I hope you have a wonderful day. And also to all of the listeners, please have a wonderful day. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe and share and do all of those beautiful things. And always keep your head held high, embrace your identities and be open to style your mind. Thank you so much. Thank you.